This week's episode is brought to you by A Night at the Walt Disney Family Museum. Come see me, Jeff Highbuck, Keith Gluck, and Bob Gurr. Put on some great presentations, share some funny videos, and have a general good time. For more information, go to thedisneyproject.com. Welcome to season three. Hello and welcome to Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show, and of course, home of the world's first pair of independently born identical twins. I'm George. And I am Jeff. And I don't even know what to say for this introduction. Generally, well, I just we... wondered why did why did your name come first what do you mean? in the commercial? It was Jeff Heimbuck, Keith Gluck, and Bob Gurr. Well, because I was the one giving the commercial. Yeah, shouldn't you be deferential to Keith because he's so much older than you? <laughs> it's funny you say that because. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. We said okay, that so... in a hit, hit when I was on the Disney project last time. And he was unhappy. <laughs> he said something about being at Disneyland in the 80s. And I said, oh, what were you, 20 at the time? And he got really mad. <laughs> yes, yes. That's, that's, that's a great uh, illusion. No, no, not a magic trick. No, no, not so, magic tricks. No, not illusions, magic Michael. Tricks. None here. None here. So, um, <laughs> it's okay. You, you can call him Mr. Manager. So, no, no, just, just manager, George. Just the manager. Just, just the manager. Just manager. So we've we've but, rambled for about yeah, non-Disney yeah. things way too long at this point. But 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 with, there's a connection because Bob Gurr might be showing up in the history segment. I mean, not personally. We might. Oh, by name. Him. By name, you mean? Yeah, by name. By okay, name. I'll accept so. that. Yes. <laughs> Spoiler: Bob Gurr does accept does show up in in the history segment. So let's let's go hear, kind of what he has to say. It's time for Disney history. You know, sometimes not every attraction that Disney puts out is a winner. Sometimes, as much as they try, they just fail to live up to their expectations, and they need to be retired to that great theme park in the sky. But sometimes, just just sometimes, those rides are brought back from the dead in a new form and revitalized for a new age with new technology. And that's precisely the type of attraction we're going to talk about today. The one and only Flying Saucers from Disneyland. And for those with a lot of luck and even a little patience, the attraction could be uh, quite rewarding. But uh, for others, it was kind of a total wash. Yeah, so back in 1960, our friend Bob Gurr was assigned to work on a duck bump attraction. Uh, now, what is a duck bump, you may ask? Uh, <laughs> it's not a slight bump that you see on a pregnant mama duck, though that would make the most sense. The duck bump rides featured boats, and by boats I actually mean a large inner tube, but boats nonetheless with a pivoting motor in the middle that a guest could pilot around a pond. Uh, it was an extremely popular type of water ride in the Midwest, and Walt, being the innovative genius that he was, wanted to improve upon the concept and bring it to Disneyland. The, the attraction was meant to be a replacement for the failed Phantom Boats. Now, of course, being Disney, improved upon the idea was. Now, no longer would it have been plates in the water. No, 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 no. It would have to be a hovercraft, because that's the next logical step, obviously. So, Bob Gurr was quoted as saying, In those days, everybody had a hovercraft project. It was a neat idea, a big buzz at the time. A lot of people were working on, on it simultaneously. 
Now, even before the idea came to Walt, Wed had been t talking about developing some kind of flying saucer type ride. And in fact, one day there was a German salesman who was, you know, knocking door to door to theme park companies as they do. Um, <laughs> and he brought a small propeller powered hovercraft. And Walt asked Bob to check it out. And he did. And he decided there really was no danger in it. And it would be a lot of fun because hovercrafts, how can you go wrong? Of course. Of course. That sounds good to me. Um, wait a minute. How's the research coming on the Communicore Weekly Hovercraft? Oh, it's going slowly. <laughs> okay. As expected. Okay. Well, uh, moving along, researching the idea a bit more, Bob discovered that Air Development, an amusement park ride manufacturer, was also developing their own hovercraft. And Bob noticed that Aero's concept of moving the, the motive force from out of the vehicles to under the floor was a very novel idea. Uh, pretty much making it work like a gigantic air hockey table. And let's face it, who doesn't like air hockey? People who I mean, hate fun. That's who well, don't unless like you're air losing. Hockey. Yeah. You know, or well, you get your I fingers lose, smashed. So therefore, I'm okay. You don't ever get your like fingers smashed? No, because I know how to play correctly. Okay. Well, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so Roger Broggy worked off that concept even more, figuring out that they could move a 2,000 pound payload if they had an air jet below with valves that allowed the air to come up through the holes in the floor. And uh, where could they get such air jets? Well, it just so happened that a whole bunch of surplus actuators from the second stage of a Jupiter missile came onto the market at the time, because let's face it, that's that's some pretty pretty good timing, if you ask me. <laughs> so Wed, Wed bought all of them and immediately put them to use on this project, and they failed pretty quickly. Why? Why did they fail? Well, because the actuators were only used for about five seconds for pitch control during the second stage of the Jupiter missiles, and then the job was done. That was it. Meanwhile, Disney was trying to use them for much, much more than they were actually meant for, figuring that they cycled them more than 7 million times. So, essentially, they broke them. <sighs> yeah. Okay. Well, Walt asked Admiral Joe Fowler to work with Aero Development on a prototype. Uh, so, work began right away uh, with, you know, can do. Joe Fowler, his nickname. Anyway, not long after, the prototype was complete, and Walt tested it, and it worked. Then the attraction went into full production. Uh, Bob Gurr designed the actual flying saucer himself, uh, receiving a patent for his efforts. As he says, he is now recognized by the United States government as a flying saucer inventor, a title which is way too awesome of a title to hold. Uh, 64 of these single-seat saucers were then put into production. Now, to power these saucers, four giant blowers were mounted below the ground to maintain the air pressure within a complex uh, 16,000 square foot network of air ducts with uh, holes and valves. And as one of the flying saucers passed over a valve, the air pressure would become imbalanced and the valve would open. And this, this open valve would provide the lift. And the constant air pressure would quickly close the valve once the saucer has moved on. And if that's too complex to understand, basically it was powered by magic. That's, that's how it worked. So they Magic. could have called it Flying Sorcerers. Yes, Flying Sorcerers of the Magic Kingdom. I like that. See? I like that. So, Synergy. Okay. <laughs> Synergy. Brought to you by Communicore Weekly. <laughs> um, okay. So pilots then could steer their saucers by leaning in whatever direction they wanted. And yes, I just did lean in my you chair. You actually just leaned, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Oh, uh, okay, so I'm going to try to sit still. If you uh, were to lean forward and air would escape out of the back of the saucer's skirt, pushing you forward. Lean back, and you moved back. Seems easy enough, right? Well, not so much. If you moved either way too much, you stalled. So sometimes adults would just wind up sitting there, unable to move just the right amount, while young kids would be bouncing all over the place. 
Now, Imagineer Bill Martin came up with his innovative loading and unloading system uh, from a ride that he saw at Riverside Park in Chicago. Now, the ride in Chicago consisted of a bunch of little boats uh, circulating in a rectangular shaped pond. And when the ride was over, a bridge would push the people off the pond, not off the boats, but in the boats, push them <laughs> off to the edge of the pond, letting the next group loose into the pool. If they pushed them into the pond, that would be really mean. <laughs> it's kind of... I should have rephrased that. I apologize. <laughs> theme park is this. <laughs> it was a water park. It, it's 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 one where the employees pay to go to work every day. <laughs> Yay. Okay. So B Bill Martin, uh, his fabulous idea was uh, improved upon. Uh, the flying saucers, well, he improved upon the concept. The, the flying saucers were placed on an oval arena that was separated by two halves by the loading platform itself. Uh, movable piers unfolded from the loading platform cutting the arena into quarter sections. And as the piers moved, they swept 16 of the saucers tightly against the loading platform. While this was happening, 16 other saucers would be loose on the other half of the arena. Uh, each side was operated independently, and this system allowed for 32 saucers loading while 32 saucers were operating at any one time. Now, during the installation and testing, the attraction was totally plagued with problems. So, while Bob Gurr's hollow saucer worked really well at our development, it didn't work so well in the park. Um, the testing ground that they used for it was actually only 4 feet deep, but at the park, it was 9 feet deep. So, since air squashes and compresses, there was way too much lag between when the air left the system to when it hit the saucers, and it took way too long to build up the necessary pressure for it to work correctly, so it just pretty much didn't work, ever. <laughs> well, despite that, the Flying Saucers opened in Tomorrowland on August 8, 1961, and due to the mechanical issues, it was the first Disneyland attraction that failed to open on schedule. The attraction was very, very popular with the public, but plagued by maintenance issues. Bob Gurr said, the pressure under the floor would drop so low that all the valves would open at once, releasing the air beneath. This caused a window-rattling sonic boom, and the saucers would drop to the ground. Due to these operational issues, the saucers closed on September 5th, 1966. Now, Bob Gurr felt that with several more levels of production and testing, and with a bit more technology, they could have gotten it right the first time. And alas, in some ways, they did just that a couple of years later, or more than a couple of years later, many years later. <laughs> let, me, let me rephrase that, I apologize. Luigi's Flying Tires opened in June 2012 in Cars Line at California Adventure, and the concept of the ride is pretty similar to the Flying Saucers, but it's a little more technologically updated. But much like the Saucers, they still suffer some of the same problems, but it's still a pretty fun ride, and uh, I enjoy it, and I guess I'm happy that it's here now, but it's, it's, it's still an issue. Well, my big question is, what exactly do you feed Luigi's Flying Tigers? Uh, you feed them whatever they want, probably meat, lots of meat. That's a callback joke to like a way, way, way <laughs> earlier episode. That's like a callback to episode 17 or 18. Only true cadets that. will understand that joke. Yes, yes. If you got that joke, let us know. I'm going to send you a button. He's a nerd. He's a geek. Because we all like to hear him speak. So listen up to the words from his beat. It's George's Book of the Week. Well, sort of continuing our look at the 1964-65 World's Fair... This week's book is the 1964-1965 New York World's Fair Images of America series by Bill Cotter and Bill Young. And I know everybody's probably seen one of these Images of America books, so they're short, uh, small paperback books loaded with photos and usually do a detailed history of a specific area. Okay, so first up, a little bit about the two bills. 
Uh, Bill Cotter actually worked at Disney from 1976 to 1982 in financial management, but he really is self-stated Disney fanatic. He actually created a film club at Disney where they screened films and television shows. And this led Cotter to write The Wonderful World of Disney Television, which we did cover on an earlier episode. Uh, he's also written many other World's Fair books, but we'll get to those later. And Bill Young is a computer programmer and has been into the fair since he was eight years old. Arcadia, the publisher, contacted him about doing a fair book, which caused him to reach out to Cotter. Young also runs NYWF64, New York's WorldFair64.com, which is one of the foremost sites on the venerated fair. So really, who better to write a new book on the 6465 World's Fair than these two guys? Okay, so what sets this book apart immediately, even from the other ones they've published, is the use of full-color photos throughout the book. It is absolutely spectacular and really a significant treat to see a lot of these pavilions and the people in the fashions in full color. Okay, so the book has seven chapters, and I think it's kind of important to go over all of them in detail. No, no, I'm just kidding. Um, the first one is a general tour, which has a large number of photos that you know don't go into a specific area. A lot of overviews, aerial shots, uh, photos of trams, and these really cool strollers. You guys got to check out the strollers. Uh, international area has some amazing shots of the internationally sponsored pavilions. Uh, these are the ones that will make most people think of World Showcase at Epcot, uh, especially the Belgian Village in Japan. Waffles. Waffles, exactly. We'll talk about those later. Um, the industrial area showcases a lot of extremely forward-thinking architecture, very pre-reminiscent, so to speak, of what we'll see in Future World. This is also where Progress Land and Small World were located. Uh, also, they've got the Traveler's Insurance Building, which had a red roof. Always makes me think of the Legion of Doom from the Justice League. <laughs> Always. And I know that's not a Marvel property, but still. It's still awesome. It's still there. And then you had the federal and state area, obviously geared towards the United States. Uh, they're pretty random. Uh, some of them are really well designed. Some of them aren't. But pay special attention to the state of California. And you'll also find Lincoln in this area. Not in California. I was going to say in Illinois. California? No, no. Who's in the Illinois Pavilion? Oh, okay. Okay. Um, the transportation area, this is an odd mix. Uh, you had some massive pavilions like the Ford Magic Skyway and GM's Futurama. Uh, the Lowenbrow Gardens were there, which is where I'd expect that you'd find Gary, Ron, and Tucker hanging out. Uh, then the uh, last big area was the Lake Amusement Area. And it was another area with a crazy mix. It was so far removed from the entrances that many pavilions simply didn't last long. Uh, the monorail was there too. Uh, there was a log flume ride that cost 75 cents in 1964. And translated into today's dollars, that would be $5.64 a ride. That's a lot of money crazy. for a ride. At, you know, yes, it is. At the time, yes, it, it was nothing. But now, <laughs> that's a lot of money. Well, wait until you get the Communicore Weekly goat around. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's going to cost way more. Way more. And the last section is night scenes, and it's a small but impressive section. Lots of great photos of different pavilions at night. And I, and I know I sort of just explained what was in the book, but really, it's a spectacular look. And I, I, I poured through it, went through it twice, looking at the photos, studying it, texting Jeff, going, look at this picture. Doesn't this picture on this page look like something we see at Disney today? And, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a great work that really adds to the World's Fair literature. If I can jump itself. in for one second, just oh, to course. reiterate what you said earlier, um, the book is in color, and their previous two books on the fair were all in black and white. So actually, yep. seeing these photographs in color to me brings them to life a lot more, and you can like get a more vivid sense of what the fair was like at that time because you're seeing it, you know, 
in living color what these people saw. So that was really, really cool. Um, tons of great images. I loved how they broke it up. I loved all the photos they shared. There were some cool Disney ones as well. I'm not going to lie, yep. of course. That's why we're looking to begin with. Um, yep. But I recommend it highly. I think we, we both do. We love it. So grab your copy of it today. It is the 1964-1965 New York's World Fair by Bill Connor and Bill Young. And when you're looking online or in the bookstore, it's got a mostly green cover. And it's the latest one. What we liked, what we didn't like, yays in the booze, 60-second review. So we both received uh, review copies of Marvel's Thor, The Dark World. Sometimes affectionately called Thor 2. I like to call it Thor 2 because the Dark World just seems like a long title to me. (laughs) It depends if we run out of time and space, we'll call it Thor 2. So um, this is is a film I saw in the theater because I got to take my 10-year-old to every Marvel superhero film or I will be a bad father. And we both enjoyed it a lot. Um, I walked away going, huh, don't know if I liked it as much as the first Thor movie, which I guess we'll call it Thor 1. Sure. Thor okay, the sure. first. We'll go from there. Thor the first. That would make the most sense. <laughs> but it's got it's got Hiddleston in it, and you can't I go love wrong Hiddleston, man. Without him, and you know, can't go wrong with him in the film. So, um, well, that, it, this, can I? I just need to say then, if yeah. while we're talking about him, that was one of my main qualms with the film is that there was to me too little Hiddleston. I mean, well, he was a lot. He was a lot. If, if you I look think at, at the end, he was there a lot. But I, I mean, I, I oh, feel like true. he wasn't involved. You know, as much in the first half because it obviously takes place just after the Avengers. Um, mm-hmm. So he's sitting, you know, in prison essentially for the first half of the film. But that's true. I know you just said you really enjoyed the film, but not as much as Thor the first. Um, but I turned it off going, you know, it was okay. It yeah, wasn't great, I mean, it, it was okay. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's one of those films where sure you can watch it after just watching Thor. But so much more is added to it if you've watched, you know, the three Iron Man films even, you know, have. If you know the scope one. of the Marvel the Cinematic Universe, you mean. Yeah, yeah. It's just it adds so much to the story itself. And I'll admit, watching it the second time on Blu-ray, I enjoyed it so much more. Uh, the jokes were there a little bit better for me. So maybe you need a second viewing. I don't, I, I don't It know. was kind of uneven to me. I thought, you know, again. I thought it was more jokey in tone in the second mm-hmm. half of the film than the first half. The first half yeah. seemed a lot more serious. Yeah. Um, I, I will, this is the... I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I thought... What's his name? <laughs> um, I thought uh, Eccleston, the ninth doctor, was very good yes. as as the bad guy with the name that I don't remember. The, the nor... Dark Elf, Mishnagala. Yeah, that dude. Like that. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I thought... Not that I'm going to say this is the first failing of Marvel's, you know, because it's still a great film. Yeah, you know, I, still I still liked it. it. Oh, I still liked it so much better than a lot of the other superhero action films that we've seen. Um, but so it's, you know, it, it, it does look good. It sounds good. You know, I really paid a lot more attention to the music in the themes uh, within the the, the uh, orchestration. thought that was really well done. You know, I, I enjoyed it. I think people should, you know, keep you it as part of the Marvel it, obviously. series. Definitely, definitely. Plus, um, cool, cool cameo at the end of the film. Not gonna, not gonna spoil it. Actually, there was a cameo <laughs> in the middle of the film too with Loki that he did that I thought was yes. quite hilarious. Yes, um, that was really well done. Really, really well done. But um, I did get, a, I did get a chance to take a look at the extras. There was a really long look at Marvel's Captain America: The Winter Soldier, which looks really dark, very and really excited, spectacular, very excited. And it's got Scarlet. Enough said about should we, that. Should we, should we take a moment? 
what to to bow our to heads let everybody and... think about scarlet sure i mean okay. i'm sure not all of our listeners are into scarlet like we are but I yeah mean, that's we'll forgive them this one time okay. so um but then there's a really uh, a longer one called a brother's journey about thor and loki which is about 30 minutes or so and it really talks about how they brought the characters together beforehand um the chemistry they have and there's a pretty interesting surprise about tom hiddleston that i will not ruin uh that, that you get to see in that sh- that that featurette. Uh, it's been on the internet already, that surprise, so oh, you may oh, know already, but oh, we won't okay. say it anyway. Okay. I won't say it anyway, just in case. Still good. Um, and then Scoring Marvel's Thor I thought was nice just to talk about the music, but the coolest one, the feature, and you can't talk anything about it, was All Hail the King. You know, they do these fantastic Marvel one-shots um, with the, that they release on the disc, which are short 10-minute little mini-episodes. Uh, you know, one of the first ones we saw was um, was when Agent Coulson goes to get Thor's hammer the first time. Yes. yes. And then there was a you know there a great one associated with Captain America, and this one is fantastic. They're all wonderful. They're great little short Marvel films, yeah. and to me, I think they're really allowing some filmmakers to explore these yeah. this universe a little better in these short little segments. And mm-hmm. uh, that's pretty brave of them. I, uh, I I think that hats off to Marvel for trusting them to do that. Oh, definitely, definitely. You know, it's so I, I think it's worth it alone to grab the film to add it to your collection. Uh, especially if you've got the other Marvel films and, you know, you don't want to buy that giant, what, $500 shield oh, the, case. the suitcase thing for the, the phase one? Because <laughs> you know there'll be something else for phase two. Exactly. Probably a Tesseract or something. No, the Tesseract was in the phase one suitcase. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. So I only got to see it on the interwebs. I don't, I don't know what, what's going to be in phase two, but yeah, they didn't regardless. Send us a copy. Maybe like an eight and a half or eight by ten glossy of Scarlett Johansson. Okay. Signed? Personalized? I could do that. With her phone number? Ooh. Anyway, we blew sky. It's not going to happen, so let's, let's no, that's stop true. talking so we about it now. So, <laughs> Regardless, so I think, I think, get it. I think we both liked the film. I enjoyed it much more the second time. I know my 10-year-old still loved it. Thought it was fantastic. He was glued to the set the whole time. He knew what was going to happen. Like the humor, the interplay with the characters. They're growing. You know, so, hey, I think we should... You know, Plus, it's got a doctor it in it. How can you go wrong? Really, <laughs> that's true. Really, that's I mean, true. yeah. Like I said, I found it was still enjoyable. I didn't enjoy it as much as I enjoyed the first one or any of the other Marvel films. To me, you know, I know some people are saying that Iron Man Two was like their least favorite of all the Marvel films. To me, this was probably my least favorite of all the Marvel films. But mm. I still found it enjoyable. I would watch it again, and uh, we think you guys should too. So uh, maybe, maybe give it a sh- give it a shot. Sometimes you might see it, sometimes you don't. Hey, look, what's that? It's a five-legged goat. So at Space Mountain at Disneyland Paris, there's probably one of the most bizarre and immature five-legged goats that we have ever seen before. <laughs> um, George is already laughing, so you know yes. it's good. <laughs> so as you're about to enter the loading station for the ride, just before you go down the set of stairs, there's a sign for the Baltimore Gun Club. And the sign features a large cannon and a slogan in the Latin across the bottom reading, and again, I apologize, my Latin is just as bad as my French, <laughs> Ad Luna in Flatula Gloria. Actually, that wasn't so bad. Anyway, no, that was pretty good. Nothing, nothing too weird about that, right? Well, you'd be wrong. The actual quote from Jules Verne is, Ad Luna in Flamma Gloria, and that means, to the moon in a blaze of glory. But this sign, it, it doesn't say that. So, while Flatuna isn't Latin for anything, it's actually a slang term for something. So the sign, Ad Luna in Flat, Flatuna Gloria, translates, translates to, roughly, to the moon in a fart of glory. How immature are these people? Really? Go ahead. 
immature. I mean, like, who are we to judge? So it's like we wrote the sign. That's it, exactly what it is. Exactly. So, okay, guys. Well, thank you so much for watching and listening to another episode. Yeah, be sure to leave us a comment and rate us on iTunes. Yep, and you can email us at communicorweekly at gmail.com. And just a reminder, we're still taking submissions for our unofficial what is a group of five-legged goats called? Uh, we've emails. received quite a number of submissions yes, we have. already, and they're hilarious. Yes, we have. We're very excited. So we'll talk about those on the show, I think. So email us at communicorweekly at gmail.com with your thoughts. Yes, and be sure to like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash communicorweekly. And you can always follow us on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at ImagineNerding, and he's at Jeff Heimbuck. And, of course, you can call us on the Communicor Weekly Goat line at 424-785-4628. And don't forget, Communicor Weekly the Musical is still out there. If you haven't heard it, we guarantee it will change your life somehow. But mostly in an alternate timeline. Exactly, exactly. And you can pick up your copy of the musical on Amazon, CD Baby, and iTunes. For Jeff Heimbuck, I'm George Taylor. And for George Taylor, I'm Jeff Heimbuck. Thanks so much for listening, guys. We'll see you next time on Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show.